Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Yuval Levin, Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the January 9th St. Vincent College-sponsored CLT is coming up soon. Applicants to St. Vincent College can take the CLT for free. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. All right, welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Yuval Levin. Uh, Dr. Levin is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and he is a founding and current editor of National Affairs, a senior editor of the New Atlantis, and a contributing editor to National Review. Dr. Levin served as a member of the White House domestic policy staff under President George W. Bush. He is the author of several books, and his most recent is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. So our first two guests on the show, uh, Dr. Robert P. George and the University of Dallas President Thomas Hibbs, uh, you collaborate with them on the E Pluribus Unum Lecture Series. Uh, it's a program dedicated to rediscovering unity despite our many differences uh, in society today. I'm curious, what was the impetus for this program, uh, and what are the, these discussions ultimately revealing uh, about civil society overall? Yeah, it's really it's been a great honor for me and for us at AI to be co-hosting these uh, conversations with Professor George and with the University of Dallas and and uh, and its president. You know, the impetus is very straightforward. The impetus is the the sheer fact of the divisions that have uh, rent our society apart now for. Uh, in some ways, the better part of a half century. Of course, in some ways, they're enduring divisions that have been with us for a long time. But we find ourselves now in a moment in American life when people feel like there are just two camps at each other's throats, uh, not only in our politics, but in our culture and in a lot of our institutions. And we're looking for ways to build bridges between those, to find some divisions, not by asking uh, anyone to give up anything they believe, but by looking for ways that we can better accommodate each other and allow our institutions to work to create social peace and more of a sense of cohesion and of unity in American life. We think it's something a lot of people want, and we think it's also achievable. And so the way we're going about it is really by taking up the issues that most divide us, talking about morality with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in the first of the Mm -hmm. sessions, uh, the now sadly late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, talking about history as a source of unity rather than just as a source of division, which was the subject of the most recent of these conversations. The idea is to see how those things that divide us might actually open a path toward seeing ourselves as one people, even if there are questions over which we might disagree with one another. I think a time to build really speaks into this. Society now, it seems to be increasingly 
polarized. I feel like you, you can almost feel it. Uh, even before the pandemic, social despair has been escalating despite other indicators of well-being uh, on the rise, improving. Uh, in your book, A Time to Build, you, you point to a crisis in our institutions. Um, can you expound on this idea? What definition uh, of institution are you using to identify this problem? Yeah, you know, in one sense, it's it's quite obvious that we're living in a time that is defined by some kind of social crisis, whether it's the polarization we've just been talking about, the divisions in our culture, whether it's even things that people see and feel in their own personal lives, a sense of alienation, isolation, loneliness, um, you know, rising suicide rates, growing use of opioids in parts of our society. All of these point to an underlying social crisis but it's not actually easy to pinpoint the roots of that uh, of that crisis and therefore the common origins of these different problems because we incline to think of our society as a kind of big open space with lots of individuals in it and they're having trouble connecting, right? And so we talk about building bridges, we talk about uh, breaking down walls, these kinds of things are very important. But I think it's important to see that you can't really have social connectedness without a structure of social life without being connected around some purposes and goals and working together in groups to achieve them. And if our country is one big open space, it's not filled with individuals. It's filled with those structures of social life. And those are our institutions. Institutions are the reasons why when we, when we work together in a school or in a church or in a family, we're not just a bunch of people. We're oriented and organized by a common purpose. And a bunch of people oriented and organized by a common purpose is an institution. Um, I, I define in the book institutions as the durable forms of our common life. They're the shapes and the structures of what we do together. Um, and, you know, some of them are organizations. They're very familiar kinds of corporately organized institutions like a school or a university, uh, like a hospital, like a civic institution. Um, but some of the most important institutions in our society are not corporate like that, um, the family is the core institution in any society. You can think about the institution of marriage or a profession as an institution, a tradition. What holds these together is that they give shape, they give form to the pursuit of a common goal by a group of people. And as a result, they also give each of those people a particular role in relation to the others. And to think of institutions as forms is to see that they are formative that they shape the, the part of our society in which they operate, but they also shape the people in them. They shape our character, they shape our soul. And ultimately it's this formative power of institutions that we really need in order to be able to function as free people in a free society. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the problems that we have that we understand in these terms of isolation, loneliness, alienation, uh, polarization, these problems are a function of failures of institutions and it's hard to see them because we often just don't see institutions. We treat them as invisible, but when we force ourselves to see them, it becomes a little easier to understand what the problems are for us to take up in our, in our current moment. You know, here at CLT, we partner with many colleges, nearly 200 now. Uh, many of these really prioritize a unity of knowledge over just kind of random graduation requirements. President Hibbs noted the importance of colleges in providing guidance to students, which really underscores an institutional role, uh, again, that, that is diminishing. You write in your book this, conservatives have clearly long been a minority in, of American academics, but their numbers have dwindled to a tiny remnant in the last few decades. In 1969, a quarter of American professors described themselves as right of center. 
By 1999, the figure was down to 12%. Recent surveys have put the number below 10%. And the situation is far worse in the social sciences and in the humanities. What is responsible for this movement? And does it tell us anything about the shifting nature of higher education today? Yeah, I think that it is both a function of supply and of demand. That is, there is certainly... Uh, there are certainly concerted efforts to keep conservatives out of certain kinds of academic departments. And gradually, even if it's not, uh, you know, some kind of conspiracy, um, it, it, gradually over time, the departments tend to have a, a single look, a single voice, and people on the right tend to be excluded from these. At the same time, the fact of that exclusion drives people away from seeking academic careers people who don't want to spend their entire lives as outcasts among their own colleagues and in, in, in constant war, just look for other things to do. And so both from the supply side and the demand side, you end up with far fewer academics, especially in the social sciences and the humanities, um, who are in any sense right of center. That affects what students are exposed to. It affects the character of campus life. But, you know, I think there's an even deeper problem, which is not about the makeup of faculty, but about the character of university administration. Um, not enough university presidents think the way that Tom Hibbs does about the purpose of the institution, which is fundamentally for him rooted in teaching and learning and the pursuit of the truth through teaching and learning. That's not uh, a partisan enterprise, and it can't really be forced into partisan categories. I think we increasingly find that university administration has come under the sway of a much more politicized way of understanding the purpose of the institution, uh, seeped, steeped in, in a kind of uh, identity politics that tries to use that mode of thought as, a, as an administrative language, as a vocabulary of deploying uh, power and authority on campus. And that creates a situation where it's just extremely difficult for views outside the academic mainstream, which is a very left-wing mainstream, to be heard on campus. And that narrowing of the, uh, the, the, the language of the academy has tremendously deleterious consequences on the experience of students and on the character of academic culture. And we need to fight back against it. I would say, I don't think that free speech is the right way to push back against that because that understates the purpose of the university. The purpose of the university is not free speech. It's not just to say anything. The purpose of the university is to pursue the truth through teaching and learning. And that is what is missing when the university comes to be intellectually closed. Um, and that's much more attractive than free speech. That really offers a lot to people who are in search of some idea of justice, which after all, these campus activists are. I think we have to take them at their word that they want to understand how to make our society better. I think the university could offer them a lot more on that front than just a venue for activism. CLT has a, a broad base across the political spectrum, uh, but I think as an education entity, we're a bit odd in that we have the most support, the most energy, enthusiasm from conservatives, many of whom feel frustrated. And I've been amazed talking to parents that they feel like there's only maybe 10% of the colleges out there are even options. Uh, so much so that others are, a lot are actually looking for a different route. And I'm talking about some, some brilliant students that are coming from great schools, great homeschool students. I've been amazed the way Inside Higher Ed, Chronicle of Higher Ed, they're not connecting the enrollment crisis. A lot of colleges are dying for students. They're not connecting the enrollment crisis to the fact that you have a large portion of Americans who don't feel like their students or their, their sons or daughters are welcome on campus because they hold traditional values. 
Well, where do you see the brick and mortar liberal arts college in three to four years? Are we going to see massive shutdowns? I've heard some people say as many as 20% could be closing. Well, I, I agree with, the, with your diagnosis there. I mean, I think the, the, the American academic community in general suffers from a very peculiar combination of overconfidence and underconfidence. They, they have a sense that they're under siege and falling apart. And at the same time, they're just not interested in changing the character of the culture. And there's, there's no sense that maybe that culture is part of what is driving people away and keeping people away. I think it is surely part of it. They also face a lot of other pressures in this moment, e- economic pressures and, uh, and the demands of the modern economy. And especially in this past year, I, I think there is a way in which the circumstances created by the, the, the pandemic that we've been living through are causing a lot of people to question just what it is that their children get out of college. You know, in a funny way for a lot of us, the, the experience of doing a lot more of our work remotely has forced us to see the difference between the parts of our work that involve communicating with other people and the parts of work that involve communing with other people, actually being with other people. Separating these two things out, really, when, when it comes to higher education in particular, just forces you to ask, what actually is the nature of this activity and where does the value in it come from? And I think for a lot of people, it makes it clearer that parents are spending an enormous amount of money to give their children an experience that isn't, for the most part, all that well-connected to the kind of formation and education or even just training that they want their kids to get. And I have to believe that will leave a lot of families asking questions about the, the basic model, the basic nature of higher education in America, and open up a lot of options for uh, new ideas to be tried in ways that might make a big difference over time. You know, I'm so glad we're talking about this. I, when I think of a school like the University of Dallas or even a, a smaller school, a school like Wyoming Catholic, where they start off the first three weeks freshman year by doing a crazy outdoor adventure and kind of push the kids to their, to their limits, those kinds of institutions seems like they could continue to thrive in the digital age because what they're doing cannot be supplanted by technology. It's a formation of the whole person. But the value of being in person versus online when there's not a vision for the whole person, um, it, it seems to be just a matter of time before people say, wait a minute, wh- why are we doing this? You know, do you, do you think those kinds of institutions are going to have a brighter future uh, than the ones that don't have a, a vision of education that's broader than just kind of bare utilitarianism? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Because I think it's very easy for those institutions that are really about the formation of the person to make it evident it's important for them to be together in one place learning something. And my hope is that that causes some of the people who run these institutions to ask themselves this question, what actually are we here to do? You know, the answer to that question is complicated. I mean, we demand a lot of universities in America. We, we expect them to do a lot of things at the same time. We expect them to, to train people and give them the skills they need in the modern economy. We expect them to give them some access to some of the best of our civilization. We expect them also to basically, frankly, offer them some entertainment and babysitting and, uh, you know, food and, and care. Many people also expect the university to, to, to direct people towards some kind of social activism or the improvement of the larger society. These are all very different things. And to expect one institution to do that, I think, is not something you can do on autopilot. You've got to constantly ask yourself, what's the purpose and how are we serving that purpose? A lot of our best universities now, so-called best universities, haven't asked that question in a long time, and it's time they did. 
So I, I got to tell you, I, I was at a, a happy hour with, with some CEOs about a year ago, and I, I thought this was just me, and I never really s- said it out loud before, uh, but there, there are six or eight of us talking, and uh, one of them said something along the lines of, of viewing some degrees from some university as liabilities. You know, whereas if you have a degree from maybe some state university and all you really know is a reputation for throwing a good party, what does that degree actually convey? Um, And we've had a weird history at CLT when people ask us and we've done this kind of impossible thing of challenging the college board and ACT. And we've done it with a bunch of St. John's College graduates, uh, a school where people tour and the parents are concerned about what will my son or daughter do. Uh, We find that they are absolutely the very best employees because they've been, you know, they've had this impractical uh, education. Do you, have you noticed the same thing? Is word getting out among employers that, college isn't really providing the workforce with, with what we need. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that you can see some of that pattern in the ways in which uh, employers value other sorts of training and, and among other things in the way in which employers value experience in the military, which is looked at as just more formative. And one of the striking things, if you look at public opinion data about trust in institutions, the, the, the American military really stands out because it is the one national institution that is more trusted now than it was 40 years ago. And part of the reason for that is that the military was, was not trusted 40 years ago in the, in, <laughs> in the midst of the Vietnam War. Yeah. But a lot of it is also that the military has come to present itself to the larger society as formative of men and women. And, you know, when someone tells you that they went to Harvard, maybe you think that person does well on standardized testing or something. When someone tells you that they went to the Naval Academy, you're likely to think, well, that's a serious person. And not because they got in there, but because the Navy makes serious people. And it really does. I I think universities that think that way about their purpose, that have as their aim to say, when people hear that this person graduated from our institution, they're going to think this is someone who has been well-formed. I think they would do a lot of things differently. And those kinds of signals are real. They, people take them seriously and, and understand something about what it means to have gone to a certain university or to have had a certain kind of life experience. Um, and I, I think it's healthy to think concretely, explicitly, about what kind of formation we're offering and how that helps our institution be understood. And again, I don't think a lot of higher education uh, institutions think that way. I feel like there has been a, an awakening with parents and students of really identifying which ones are the ones that are actually providing something formative that's going to be recognized. Um, I want to switch over. We always spend the last few minutes chatting about books at CLT. We're, we're kind of an odd company. We actually start every single day reading out loud together as a company. We're doing mm. Aesop's tables right now, Aesop or Aesop. Um, and uh, we just finished the souls of black folk by Du Bois uh, in, in the third quarter. Um, we typically, you know, start off with it with asking you about kind of what you're reading now and your favorite books. But I, I do see right next to you Democracy in America, and it was uh-huh. hugely formative to me in college and my wife as well. We we talk about it. It kind of it's weird how much we talk about Democracy in America. That work in particular, what, what was the influence uh, on you? It, it's an enormously influential book on me, and I, I have to say I, I try to reread it about once a year. I haven't quite kept okay. to this in the last few years, but. It's amazing how reading that book at different moments in your life and at different moments in the life of the larger society can bring different things out of that book. It's just an extraordinary work of of social analysis by someone who really saw deep into the American soul. And so although it was written in the 1830s, there's a huge amount in that book that just tells us about ourselves in ways that we're not inclined to see 
Um, and it's not just good things about ourselves. That's a wonderful thing about it, too, is Tocqueville really saw the good and the bad and tried to understand how American society functions and thrives. It's a book that I would just recommend to absolutely anybody, and it's so wonderfully written um, and, and so engaging. So I, I think that is a very, very powerful way to uh, force yourself to think about what it is to be an American. Well, it's fascinating the way his, his outsider perspective, you know, coming here from, from France, right. allowed him to have a, a kind of clarity uh, that people who had been born here couldn't have. I'm interested uh, what other books have kind of been most formative to you in your own journey. Well, that certainly is one of them. I would also say that, uh, th- that reading a lot of Edmund Burke has really helped to shape my outlook on things, um, certainly reflections on the revolution in France. But uh, I-, I wrote a PhD dissertation at the University of Chicago on Burke and really in reading his letters and reading his speeches, what you get is a a worldview that begins from an anthropology that sees the human person as in need of formation and looks at social institutions as directed to that formation um, and therefore treasures those institutions that have allowed people to thrive. And that's just really shaped my outlook on things ever since. Uh, Just an enormously powerful way to think about our kind of society. And we, we have a lot of uh, young, I've been amazed uh, to hear the number of teachers that actually assigned Anchored as homework sometimes. Um, for young people, if there's one single text that you would recommend to them that they need to pick up and, and read maybe over Christmas break, what is that? Well, I do think Democracy in America is a good one, although Christmas break, you'd have to do a lot of reading. It's a big <laughs> book. Um, I, I actually think that picking up a, a, a complete copy of The Federalist is a great practice for young Americans. The Federalist, you know, it, it, obviously it's a set of essays that were written around the debate over the Constitution, but it, it's another book that when you read it at different times, you draw different things out of it, and there's so much wisdom in it about how societies function, how politics works, how to make the most of basically low expectations of the human person, but high expectations of social institutions, which I think is more or less the right way to think about uh, our kind of political life. So you, you could hardly do better than, um, than, than Madison and Hamilton at this point. This has been a delight to have you. We're grateful to uh, the work that you're doing at AEI with, with E Pluribus Unum. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.